I'm Kimberly Crenshaw, and this is Intersectionality Matters, the podcast that brings intersectionality to life by exploring the hidden dimensions of today's most pressing issues, from Say Her Name and COVID to the war on CRT and the global rise of fascism. This idea travelogue lifts up the work of leading activists, artists, and scholars, and helps listeners understand politics, the law, social movements, and even their own lives in deeper, more nuanced ways. scientists tell us that authoritarian parties have two essential features in common in history and around the world. They do not accept the results of democratic elections when they lose, and they embrace political violence as legitimate. What it was going to be was an armed revolution. I mean, people died that day. This could have been the spark that started a new civil war. In a world of resurgent authoritarianism and racism and anti-Semitism, let's all hang tough for American democracy. If a president that's willing to encourage, to whip up a civil war amongst his followers using lies and deceit and snake oil, regardless of the, the human impact, what else is he gonna do if he gets elected again? All bets are off at that point. These sobering reflections came from the remarkable hearings of the House Select Committee on the January 6th insurgency this week. Jamie Raskin, the committee member from Maryland, and Jason Van Tatenhove, a former member of the Oath Keepers, together made one thing abundantly clear. Our democracy is at stake. In stark detail, the American people learned how close our democracy came to collapse, how lies, deceit, and the willingness to use violence to install an authoritarian leader over the will of voters almost took us over the brink and the threat has not dissipated. Embedded in this horrifying story is the undying corpse of racism and anti-Semitism. These bedrock investments brought our country to a bloody conflagration once before, and they threatened to do so again, unless we learn history's lessons. We know the importance of knowledge about our history, and so does the other side. Those who control what we can know and think about who we were, control what is possible for who we can become. That's why the same faction that sought to overthrow the elections are the ones who are attacking measures for racial justice, who are saying that our voting, our protesting, our thinking, our teaching are a threat that they are willing to subvert democracy to extinguish. They have bundled together the lessons and commitments of the civil rights movement into the container of critical race theory. We've seen this story before. And unless we remember enough of our history to write a different ending, our democracy, as Jamie Raskin told us, will remain on life support or worse. If anti-racism and multiracial democracy are one in the same, and we contend that they are, then we can't save one without a robust commitment to anti-racist education. And that's why we need CRT. It's not just about a few letters. It's about a prism. It's about how we know what we know. It's about what we see, how we see it, and what it means for the future of our democracy. 
In this special episode, we're going to revisit our continuing coverage of the attack on CRT and how the campaign to suppress conversations about race and about racism are part and parcel of what the current crisis we are facing is. We'll elevate what CRT really is and we'll share how everyone who cares about our democracy can learn more about how important this prism is for us to see what is at stake. We'll talk about how AAPF has adopted the venerable tradition of freedom schools. We use freedom school traditions to craft an education for the 21st century. Critical Race Theory Summer School, running next week from July 18th to the 22nd under the theme, Teaching Truth to Power. As we elevate the true story of CRT, I encourage you to check out our website, aapf.org slash CRT Summer School to follow along. How can we understand the stories that drove the insurrectionists to seize the Capitol through a critical race theory lens. In episode 34 of Intersectionality Matters, entitled The Story of Us, we talked about the lost cause, the ways that enslavement continues to shape American politics long after the end of the Civil War, and why we need to have a healthy and honest understanding of our past in order to protect our future. First, we'll hear from Brian Stevenson, author of Just Mercy and founder and executive director of the Equal Justice Initiative. And then we'll hear from David Blight, Pulitzer Prize winning author and esteemed professor of American history at Yale University. Well, in many ways, I don't think we've ever created narratives about Wilmington and Tulsa and much of our history that have been given to the American people. Most Americans walk around with a false narrative of who we are, of what this country is. It's what we were taught in school. It is a narrative of greatness, of achievement, but it is false because it is incomplete. We are a nation that is also a post-genocide society. What happened when Europeans came to this continent was a genocide. We killed millions of indigenous people through famine and war and disease. We created a narrative of racial difference. We said that those indigenous people, those native people, they're savages. And we use the rhetoric of that narrative to disconnect from their well-being, their humanity. And we created a constitution that talked about equality and justice, but didn't extend to the millions of native people who were dying. And we use that narrative of racial difference to then get comfortable with two and a half centuries of slavery. We are a slave society. They had slavery all over the world. And in most countries, uh, they were societies with slaves. America actually became a slave society. We created a narrative that made slavery about race. And the great evil of slavery wasn't the involuntary servitude. It wasn't the forced labor. It was this idea that Black people aren't as good as white people, that Black people are less human, less capable, less evolved. And that narrative of white supremacy, that was the true evil of American slavery. The Civil War comes and the North wins the Civil War, but the South wins the narrative war because that idea of racial hierarchy, of white supremacy, continues. Even some abolitionists didn't believe in racial equality. And that's why I've argued that slavery doesn't end in 1865. It just evolves. We pass the 13th Amendment that talks about ending involuntary servitude and forced labor, but says nothing about ending this racial hierarchy. It's why Reconstruction fails, because we weren't committed to a narrative of equality. And lawlessness then defines 
the 20th century. Black people pulled out of their homes, beaten, drowned, tortured, tormented, lynched, sometimes on the courthouse lawn. Our Supreme Court did nothing. Our Congress did nothing. Our policymakers did nothing. We were a nation in the first half of the 20th century that gave in to lawlessness. And that created this mass exodus. And the Black people who went to Cleveland and Chicago and Detroit and Los Angeles and Oakland didn't go to those communities as immigrants. They went to those communities as refugees and exiles from terror in the American South. Mm -hmm. And then we had the Civil Rights Movement. But even there, the narrative was corrupted. It was a false narrative. We had courageous people who did courageous things. But that narrative of racial difference was never confronted. The presumption of dangerousness and guilt that gets assigned in Black and brown people was never really addressed. So after the civil rights era, when we passed the voting rights law and the civil rights law, we had the same phenomena happening uh, that we had after the Civil War, retreat from enforcement. And then we created this new institution of mass incarceration, over-incarceration. And at the beginning of the 21st century, we're hearing from the Justice Department that one in three black male babies born in this country is expected to go to jail or prison, and no one responds. We don't react to that with a kind of pandemic level of concern. And our jails and prisons fill up and black people are shot and killed on the streets by the police, and people are confused why there's such anger and frustration. So the narrative of America that we need to confront is a narrative we've never been forced to confront. And so the challenge we have is, will we find the courage to do this? Because in other countries where this has happened, South Africa, Germany, there was a tremendous shift in power. Black South Africans took over. That's why you had truth and reconciliation. In Germany, the Germans lost. That's why there's a Holocaust memorial in Berlin. And the consequence of that shift in power has yielded something that I think is powerful. When you go to Berlin, there's a reckoning with the legacy of the Holocaust. You couldn't, I don't believe, succeed too long by talking about make Germany great again, by invoking <laughs> some romanticized vision. Mm. It would not be acceptable to the world to have that. There are no Adolf Hitler statues in Germany. It would be unconscionable for someone to say, let's honor the architects of the Third Reich. But in this country, I live in Alabama, surrounded by the iconography of the Confederacy, where we honor and romanticize the defenders, the perpetrators of this violence. And those images that many of those folks took to Washington on the 6th is an indictment of our failure collectively to tell the honest story. And Hollywood and storytellers and filmmakers are implicated in that because it was a generation of cowboy and Indian films that kept us away from dealing with the native genocide. It was a century of storytelling that made slavery somehow romantic and benign and, and put Black people in roles that we were led to believe they were happy to be enslaved and marginalized and disenfranchised. It was even in the storytelling of civil rights that we had to create white saviors to kind of get those stories palatable. So I think that's the challenge that we face. We've got to confront this. And that's why I believe, you know, we're really at a moment when we need an era of truth and justice. And that's the challenge that I think awaits this country and it's the reason why we had that explosion of lawlessness and, and mob violence on the 6th of January. I want to bring David in here, you know, as well. So uh, Brian was talking about dimensions of the lost cause frame and, and what was necessary to make it palatable uh, so that effectively the South won the narrative war. What is it that you see in the sort of revivalism of lost causism in American politics now and particularly as playing out in January uh, the 6th? Well, thanks. Uh, hard to follow, Brian. I, I love the way Brian can capture so much <laughs> history in single sentences. I wish I could do that. Anyway, um, 
you know, to, to the original idea he brought up of this, this broad master American narrative that we are a people of progress, always improving, always solving our problems. I think it was Richard Hofstetter, at least that's who's given credit for it, who once said, the problem with the way some people do American history is America was born perfect and then launched its career of improvement. <laughs> which, which I know, love that. I, 1776 an commission, right? That, exactly. That's, that's, that's current. That's that's why that 1776 project, well, it's one of the reasons it's, it's to be uh, denounced and avoided. But anyway, in the wake of the Civil War, to go right to the core of where, where Brian took this, the closest thing we ever had to a truth and justice commission were the Ku Klux Klan hearings, as, as Brian knows. In 1871, the Grant administration, to its credit, went after the Klan, especially in South Carolina, but in other upper up-south states as well. And they ended up holding hearings in seven states. It developed 14 massive volumes of testimony. These were perpetrators of violence, and these were victims of violence. And after these uh, testimonies that went on in seven different states with tribunals of congressmen, by the way, Congress had never done anything like this before. And the purpose of this was to try to prosecute people. They ended up with uh, about 3,000 indictments. About 2,000 others had their charges dropped. 600, and th this was for the massive level of, of tortures and murders and burnings and so on, done by the Klan from roughly 1868 to 71. Uh, 600 people were convicted, 250 were acquitted. Most of them got very light sentences. 65 people out of those totals actually went to prison, and none of them for more than five years in a penitentiary in Albany, New York, and they were all out by the election of 1876. Now, one of the reasons they threw out a lot of cases is they said the court dockets were just so overloaded, they, they couldn't even assess the, the trials. So, but here's the point of all of that. The Klan was put out of business, but not the Klan's methods and not the Klan's ideas. It just took on different names and different tactics in different places. Uh, and uh, what, just a year after that was the, the worst massacre of Reconstruction in Colfax, Louisiana where about 50 blacks were murdered in cold blood trying to vote, and then another roughly 300 in that Red River region were killed in, in the wake of it. A point, though, on this lost cause idea. One of the reasons the Klan hearings did not produce more widespread justice was because of this demand developing across the culture for reconciliation, for reunion of North and South to somehow put the place back together in peace, which did have to happen. The question was always how you did it. Reconciliation, we should learn from what happened in the wake of our civil war, always comes with cost. In fact, at blue-gray reunions, which were reunions of soldiers, by the 1890s, they were happening all over the country, even in northern cities. They usually advertised these blue-gray reunions with slogans like harmonious forgetfulness. Harmonious forgetfulness. I mean, just think about what that means. And then finally, they had, they had the great 50th anniversary reunion at Gettysburg in 1913, this massive spectacle, 53,000 veterans gathered 
at public expense from all corners of the country. And the whole thing was a segregated Jim Crow reunion where were no black veterans invited. The only black people at that great Gettysburg reunion were black men who built the latrines, handed out the blankets to the old soldiers, and worked in the kitchens that provided the food. The United States, at its 50th anniversary of Gettysburg and therefore the Civil War, had a Jim Crow reunion. And the whole spirit of that reunion was captured by none other than Woodrow Wilson, who was the first Southern-born president elected after the Civil War. He didn't, he didn't want to go to Gettysburg, but he was told by AIDS, no, no, sir, you have to go. You know, you, you don't understand, you have to go. So he comes, he shows up, he gives a speech in a giant tent to all these veterans, and what does he call the Civil War? He calls it the quarrel forgotten. Just hmm. the quarrel forgotten. And he left them with this image of all these glorious old men looking into each other's eyes and finding love again. Hmm. Anyway, you know, <laughs> that's what harmonious forgetfulness gets us. And the warning there, and I'll stop with this, the caution, of course, is all this talk of unity now all this talk of healing about our recent experience, whether it's 6 January or everything in the Trump years, our history tells us be very careful about how much healing you promote without real justice to go with it. And that's our task mm -hmm. in front of us right now. And it isn't gonna be any easier this time than it was 100 years ago. David Blight's caution about proclaiming healing without justice couldn't be more apt. The story that Bryan Stevenson told, the story of how slavery and white supremacy evolved rather than died, is the story that critical race theorists have been telling for decades. The false reunion between the Union and the Confederacy is like the false ending of every episode of Friday the 13th. The evil that created disaster doesn't die. It lives on in institutions, in housing, in education, in culture, and in law, even though its afterlife is denied by colorblindness and post-racialism. One of the core observations of CRT is you don't solve the problem of racism by refusing to talk about racism. You deal with racism by understanding how it functions and to what end. During CRT Summer School, our sessions on frameworks show how this history lives on and what we should do about it. Here, we'll introduce three channels on CRT Scholarship, CRT 101, CRT 201, CRT Advanced Topics. On top of that, we'll have the channel on Intersectionality Still Matters, while I'll be hosting sessions on the overturning of Roe versus Wade and intersectionality across borders. We'll have law professors showing what difference CRT can make in law. And we'll also have a channel hosted by Robert Williams on indigeneity. But of course, prisms are only useful if we use them to see things that may not immediately meet the eye. In our summer school sessions on dynamics, we focus on the interactive dimensions of racism. When people don't understand that race is not so much a noun, but is actually a verb, as in people are raced or racialized, 
they tend to think of anti-racism as just identity politics, maybe even identity politics run amok. How should we respond to this concern? Well, yes, racism does have a lot to do with identity, but as Gloria Ladson Billings explained in our episode, The Insurgent Origins of Critical Race Theory, it's about the particular ways that race is created through, for example, public policy and housing. It is structural and it is also personal, as she so movingly explained. One of the things that you learn when you grow up in a place like Philadelphia is that somehow you're from the North. And somehow things are better. And somehow we got it right. And I kept saying, no, we haven't. I, you know, I could see it each and every day. And one of the stories that really shaped my life was uh, that of my own family. My, my dad is a World War II veteran. And he comes out of uh, World War II. The GI Bill is, is passed. And yet he really can't access that GI Bill, but he he wanted to buy a home for his family. The going rate at that time was about $8,000. And it turns out that that's how much a Levittown home costs. So Levittown is taking folks into the suburbs, these beautiful homes. The problem is my dad can't get a Levittown home because there's something called Clause 25 that says no person other than a person of the Caucasian race can purchase, lease, or occupy a Levitt home. So the difference is that my father buys a home in West Philadelphia, and I tell people all the time, I'm not mad about growing up in West Philadelphia. I love living in West Philadelphia. What's different, however, is that if you fast forward to the 21st century, That $8,000 Levittown house versus the $8,000 house my father bought in West Philly have appreciated totally differently. The West Philadelphia home is worth, and I, you know, check these kind of things. So I looked at Zillow, about $93,000. Now, of course, we're in the middle of gentrification in West Philly, so it may be up to $180,000. But the Levitt home, is assessed at $565,000. Look at the generational wealth. When we think about Black families have about $1,200 on average in wealth, whereas their white counterparts have 147,000, most of it in home ownership. So the fact that there weren't laws in place in say Philadelphia or New York or New Jersey or Boston to create the school segregation. The housing policy, and I always say housing policy is education policy. Where you determine where our students can go to schools, you are making a decision. Where they can live is where they have their schooling and where they have their schooling is about their futures. So I think those are the things that got me thinking from the beginning, You know, how is this possible? that you know you can have a national law the gi bill and only certain people can actually access it that same gi bill allowed black gis to go to school so yes they could go to vocational and trade schools they chose to go there instead of to college but they couldn't get into the union so yes i have a, a background in plumbing but i can't become a plumber it's that de jure segregation that 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 is 
prevalent across the board. It's, you know, it's none of it is de facto. All of it is that the law is operating. It's just where upstream does the law connect? And I'll just say this as a wrap up. I, I tend to visit a lot of classrooms now that we're all in this remote learning. So I visit a classroom in North Carolina and the former, the teacher is a former student of mine, high school teacher. And he asked his students to go home and see if anyone in their family, grandparent, great-grandparent, had benefited from the GI Bill. Well, it turned out among the white students, almost all of them could point to a grandparent or great-grandparent who got their first home via the GI Bill. Well, one young man said, my grandfather got the home, took the equity out of the home, and started a business. And he became a millionaire selling brooms and mops. None of this former students, Black students, had one relative who could say, oh, yeah, I was able to leverage the GI Bill. Now, someone would say, well, how is that possible? Well, you have to remember, it may be a federal law, but it gets administered at the state level. It is all de jure. It's all de jure, she notes, meaning that the dynamics of racial inequality didn't just creep up overnight. At some point, they were permitted, if not actually required by law. And long after these laws may change, they continue to cast their long shadows over social life. It's these continuing dimensions of racism, what we sometimes call institutional or structural racism, that policies like affirmative action were meant to address. Luke Harris will take this up in Requiem for Affirmative Action. As we'll hear in the channels Things My Teacher Never Taught Me and Everyday CRT in K-12, these histories are not taught. And consequently, the source of racial inequality and the scope of race reform are not well understood. The common refrain, we don't even teach CRT, is not, in fact, a good thing at all. The problem isn't too much critical race theory in public education, it's too little. Of course, you wouldn't know this if you relied on mainstream media, as contributors to the Media Malfeasance channel will discuss. There's much more at stake than the failure of the media to tell the full story. As instructors in our Educators Taking Action channel will reveal, the absence of honest and truthful education creates the fertile ground for the slide to white nationalism. As our plenaries will reveal, the assault on CRT is not really about eliminating CRT. It's about dismantling public education writ large. And that starts by attacking educators who take seriously the democratizing goal of public education. As Mark Rosenbaum will teach, it's an attack on the rights of children of color to know themselves. Educators know all too well the consequences of teaching these histories in this environment. While groups like Moms for Liberty try to remove books that teach about segregation from the stories of Martin Luther King and Ruby Bridges, teachers are being driven out of their jobs. In Educators Ungagged, AAPF's Sumi Cho heard firsthand from Matthew Hahn, one of many educators who've had their lives upended by this manufactured moral panic. 
Matthew, in your experience in teaching social studies, you indicate how important it was to stimulate class discussion, to make it real for the students, to allow them to have a sense of understanding of who they are, where they come from, the historical implications behind various events. And there didn't seem to be any ostracization or penalty for teaching any other topics that you've taught during your time as a teacher. But there was an uproar once your lessons touched on issues relating to racial equity, social justice. You dared speak the words white privilege. One of the charges that was leveled against you was that you failed to teach a quote, diversity of views. Do you believe there's a contradiction in that charge, especially in relation to your Eastern Tennessee community? And can you take us through what accompanying tactics of degradation were used to try to silence you? Sure, thank you, uh, Sumi. Just echo what Dr. Whitfield said. Thank you for having us. Um, you know, I teach in a county that is 95% white in a school district that is 98% white. And so what I have always tried to do is provide my students with varying viewpoints, no matter what issue we are talking about. And uh, this year it's been difficult. I never thought that I would be in this position, but um, it, it all started back in the fall. Uh, I made the statement during the events in Kenosha that white privilege is a fact. And this was to a contemporary issues class. We were discussing that. I also challenged our students. I said, in this unit, we are going to look at solutions to racism in the United States. Uh, that statement, white privilege is a fact, made it to our uh, director of curriculum and instruction who brought up the Tennessee Teacher Code of Ethics. You know, statements like this is a fact, uh, deny students access to varying points of view. In the times of COVID, my students went back home after that, so I didn't get the opportunity to bring that up again. I think that's a conversation that we need to have in class. But um, in January, uh, after the events at the Capitol, I wasn't real sure how to talk about it. It was the first time in my life that a sitting president had encouraged the overthrow of the United States government. So I thought, sticking with my state standards, I would look at uh, the 2016 election. And I asked my students, this election is historic. You know, what were some reasons that led to the election of Donald Trump? And they, they came up with great answers and they were all at home. But I decided to lead with a ta Coates essay that made it to a parent who complained about the language, said that I was denying students access to varying points of view. Two weeks later, on February the 3rd, I received an official reprimand from the school. If you look at that reprimand, my statements are inaccurate and taken way out of context. The central office did not interview me. They didn't ask, hey, what are you doing here? They, they didn't want to know. I appealed it and, and lost to the school board. All six board members voted to uphold my reprimand. And so we continue on with the semester and then the Derek Chauvin trial happens and everybody in the world is talking about it. So I'm a contemporary issues class. We have to talk about it. And a student brings up white privilege. And so like a good teacher, I say, well, what is that? And we begin that discussion, which leads me to 
showing the poem White Privilege by the brilliant Kyla Janae Lacey. Somebody complained. Uh, two weeks after showing the poem, I was dismissed for not providing my students with varying points of view. And my response to that is, you know, in a dominant conservative white culture, the viewpoints of ta Coates and Kyla Janae Lacey are the varying viewpoints. My students deserve the right to have these conversations, to be challenged by these conversations and hear these varying points of view than the dominant white culture that is in Northeast Tennessee. Our history is in East Tennessee, people don't realize is very progressive. Um, we were known as the Little Union in the Civil War. And I actually had an ancestor who was um, hung in Knoxville, Tennessee for uh, being a bridge burner. Uh, he burned Confederate supply lines and railroads. And the first abolitionist newspaper uh, in America is 20 minutes south of me. So it, it's, I think if people were more aware of the history of Northeast Tennessee, you know, they might be a little bit more open to hearing varying viewpoints, you know, the fight for racial equity and, and the fight against injustice. Matthew Hahn and the others featured in that episode will join us in summer school. They'll teach the very lessons that their school board sought to censor. Now, as teachers, they'll be the first to direct our attention to the students, those who are being held hostage in this attack on public education. Students of color who are again robbed of the information they need to make sense out of the world they inherited. And white students who want to understand the many legacies of a republic that made whiteness a ticket for first-class citizenship. The freedom to learn is truly at stake, a freedom that CRT Summer School seeks to honor. Of course, at the end of the day, we educate ourselves to become active participants in this democracy. And activations are exactly what we'll be focusing on in our classes offered under that title. At Summer School, our activations are curated for youth, for teachers, for parents, for philanthropists, for faith communities, and for the general public, those who have had enough. We'll talk about how to fight rather than run. In Messaging the Moment, we'll hear from pollsters who have news for our elected representatives. Our constituents want them to fight for what's right. No more pivoting to run. And we'll hear from political veteran Nina Turner, journalists Mark Lamont Hill and Laura Flanders about just how to do that. We'll learn from Barbara Arnwine and the Transformative Justice Coalition about how those who can't win in a true democracy would prefer to subvert a democracy. From vote denial to vote suppression, the tactics have merely evolved and our resistance must evolve with it. The promise and perils of race and democracy were exactly what the Roundtable of Black Women explored in our episode, Having Our Say, Black Women Respond to the Vice Presidential Debate. Take a listen to what my sister friends Alicia Garza and Kirsten West Savali had to say after Kamala Harris's electrifying performance in the Vice Presidential Debate. We came into this debate Talking about Black Lives Matter so much, I'd never seen the Democratic Party talk so much about Black Lives Matter. It was in alphabet blocks. It was, you know, I mean, they really did the whole thing. 
But yet when it comes to really deeply engaging black communities, I think what we find is that people don't have the range. But the problem is that they think they have the range and that's where the tension comes in. So yes, we have known, not just for this last election cycle, but for the last three, that black folks are showing up and showing out black women in particular at higher rates than any other ethnic or gender group. And yet we haven't figured out yet how to deeply invest in our communities to help build the infrastructure needed to widen that base of voters. No, instead they're going after white women in the suburbs and thinking that somehow magically they are going to transform um, deeply ideologically committed Trump voters to becoming Biden voters or Harris voters or just democratic voters. It ain't gonna happen. When it comes to black men, I think there's another issue that we have to face here, which is, you know, both parties, frankly, do the symbolic engagement and never get into the depth of engagement. We tell the same stories and use the same storytellers over and over again. Black folks are deeply engaged around hip hop, but not everybody's deeply engaged around hip hop. So you can't keep trotting out hip hop folks to talk to black folks and act like that's gonna be the um, extent of your outreach. You can't keep having candidates go on talk shows and do the Dougie, but not do town halls in our communities about you know Medicaid expansion or the lack thereof. The fact that wages are not high enough to support families, particularly ours. And so what we see over and over again is that in these campaigns, you have white folks leading black engagement strategies, and that's a huge issue that we're facing. So across the board, Kim, it's the operationalizing of racism in relationship to the engaging or lack of engaging in our communities. Joe Biden doubled down on this law and order messaging, but he can never be the law and order president. That is a story that has shaped, been shaped by the extreme right the story about communists and Marxists and you know Antifa taking over the world and trying to build an empire. Um, the story about rioting and looting and black people turning up for no apparent reason except that we are finally ready to um, you know deliver retribution to white people. Truth be told, if black folks were going to turn up in retribution, it would have been done already. Trust me, we've had hundreds of years to do that. But second of all, if black voters can't tell the difference between where Democrats stand and where Republicans stand, that in and of itself is a voter suppression tactic. And I don't think that these campaigns have actually deeply internalized this as a pivot that they need to make. They will say Black Lives Matter until they're blue in the face, but when we know that Black Lives Matter is when we see them building deep infrastructure in our communities, not their own infrastructure, but lifting the infrastructure that we have already built through not only trust and relationships, but through experience. It is a puzzle to try to figure out why it doesn't make more sense to them to invest in their base, right? It actually even costs more money, you know, to try to go after those, you know, Trump voters that they think that they can, can peel up. It costs more money. They're willing to pay that money and it's harder to do than it is to invest and build up the infrastructure of the base that's more likely to vote for you in the first place. So I'm trying to figure out what story is that telling us? Is this political implicit bias that they just see those votes as more valuable, even though they cost more, right? They're harder to get because you, you got to think that they want to win. So if they want to win, 
you know, you want to dance at the party, dance with the person who brought you to the party, right? Stop trying to go to get the person who didn't want to be seen with you. So I'm trying to understand how we understand this. So we're in a better position to make the case that this is where the investment needs to go. So let me finish this round and Kirsten, you know, come back around to you. So I said at the top of the show that I don't typically like to do the black girl magic thing because sometimes it makes it seem like, you know, um, we need to be magical to survive. And we should normalize that need to be magical to survive. We should be able to survive just like anybody else. But it kind of seems like this is a moment where they're kind of relying on political black girl magic. You know, we're not going to put a whole lot of money uh, into mobilizing y'all, but we know that y'all can, you know, y'all can do it. And of course, we're going to try to do it because our lives are on the line. But the need to to break this expectation that we can make a way out of no way, you know, to move from celebrating that to, to problematizing the conditions that make us have to be magical to survive. So here we are at this moment. Um, what's your sense of whether we can break out of that now? And, and if so, how? It's very hard, I think, when they put us in a position of, if we want to survive white supremacy, if we want to survive this violence, then we have to vote for this party. That's the bar. They're better than the Republican Party. At least we're not going to fall out and, and die from COVID-19. At least there won't be you know, tiki torches in the street. But until the Democratic Party, I think, reckons with its own violence and its own complicity, we will continue to be in this at this point, at this juncture. So for eight years, we're talking about the Obama administration, how much violence happened to black people? How much did we have to push for while we can't wait? How were police officers held accountable during those years? Look at Chicago with Laquan McDonald. What, what happened with those things? So until the Democratic Party, I think, reckons with its own violence and its own complicity, we'll face them kind of backing off when those conversations come up. So people can laugh and joke about, oh, everybody was talking about Hillary Clinton and super predators. It's cute. However, when we talk about the drug war and why the police were even at Breonna Taylor's house, right? And we're talking about arresting the boyfriend and, oh, it was drugs in the house. Crime bills matter. That matters. This is a direct continuum of that kind of thinking. It really, really is. So when we talk about the interest, I said a long time in 2016, I even said the Democratic Party is going to probably move a little bit further right because they can, because they can. They're not going, when have they ever said, we're gonna go into these hoods, we're gonna go to the people and respect and listen to their voices and say, this is why I'm not voting. This is why I don't trust you. Going back to the primary, you would have thought that Joe Biden was, you know, golfing and sipping my ties with Strom Thurmond. He was that bad of a person. And now we're supposed to just trust him. People aren't stupid. So there's some people, it's a political game to some people. And for some people, it's about their lives. It's not just a scrimmage, as Obama has said. And at the end of the day, we all come together as one, as one purple country. No, the hell it's not. These people are violent. They're white supremacists. They won't even clearly say he's racist. You know, he believes in racist things or he won't disavow racist people. But how come we can't say this man at this point is an accessory to the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people? What does that mean if we live in a country where our constitution and our structures can't even allow us to get rid of somebody like that, who is the antithesis of everything this country claims to stand for? There's nothing we can do. So 
my takeaway when I see black girl magic, I would, I didn't really go into it with that mindset because at this point, like you said, it's not about being magical. We're trying to survive and we shouldn't have to be magical to survive. We shouldn't have to wonder because we have more pre-existing conditions. We have to go vote to save this country. But what if I bring COVID-19 back to my family? What if I die? So there's just, I don't know. I'm not feeling much magic right now, Kim. And indeed, our survival as a democracy is not about magic. It's about protecting the hard-fought rights to vote, to raise our voices and to tell our truths. Now more than ever, we're coming together to protect ourselves, protect our legacies, to protect our lives. In summer school, we are all about sharing with each other what works, sharing our vision of the lives we want to lead, the prisms we need to guide us, and the tactics we need to get there. It's a great gathering space where there are a lot of conversations, some likely, some unlikely. Social workers will talk about artivism and intersectionality. Grassroots organizers will work together with parents. White women will organize as counterweights against the CRT panic. Faith communities will work to resist the weaponization of religion. Lawyers will imagine alternatives to the current legal order. And people of color will learn different histories from their own. As you can see, there's a lot to cover. And with 100 instructors, 21 channels, and 85 plus classes, there's an activation for everyone because everyone has something at stake. CRT Summer School. It's live July 18th through the 22nd and on demand until September. There's a sliding scale for tuition, group rates, and scholarships so everyone can attend. And don't forget their CLE and other continuing education credits. If you're a lifelong learner or just looking for a community that is ready to fight for our future, then come to the virtual schoolhouse. We'll be there waiting for you. Intersectionality Matters is produced and edited by Julia Sharp Levine. This episode was co-produced by Ashley Julian with support provided by Destiny Spruill, Rebecca Sheckman, and the African American Policy Forum. You can support us by subscribing and leaving a review, following us on social media, and joining our Patreon page for bonus episodes and exclusive content. I'm your host, Kimberly Crenshaw, and this is Intersectionality Matters. Louis Scarcella was the greatest homicide detective of his generation. I am the protector of these people. I am the guardian that they need. Derek Hamilton was the best jailhouse lawyer of his. And the law was my girlfriend. It was all I had. What happens when a group of convicted felons take on the cop who put them away? We got to attack Scarcella. Come and get me. Listen to new episodes of The Burden on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.